Welcome to the Rock Podcast. We've begun studying Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most unique and intriguing books in the Bible. King Solomon is reflecting on some of his backsliding years, and he's going to try to convince you to live with an eternal perspective by proving to you how meaningless life is without God at the center. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we're reminded to look to Jesus for our joy and purpose in life. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, just uh, we thank you for the truth that is revealed to us through Ecclesiastes, the preacher who's preaching a sermon about having a God-centered life and not um, wandering from the truth and having a meaningless life, Lord. And we all know what that feels like. So help us to um, grasp these truths, Lord, Keep us close and near to Jesus. It's that's where the blessing and the joy, the safety, the provision um, are found. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the world can be a pretty sad place, especially if you, you look at all the suffering, especially man's inhumanity uh, to man. And it's a whole lot uh, sadder if you don't have hope, if there's no idea of redemption at all, and you look around at this world and the suffering that takes place, and there's no hope of, of anything good coming of it, no, no eternal perspective, no hope of heaven, no hope of a savior, uh, then that grief really can spin you and cause you to despair. And that's what's going to happen here in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes means the preacher. The preacher, in this case, is Solomon. And Solomon is going to really get stumbled over the fact that there's just so much uh, suffering. And he's going to talk about, really, the plight of the oppressed, the masses in this world who suffer under tyrannical rulers. And so... These rulers who rise to power, uh, corrupt, who terrorize and murder millions of people and instill fear, and they, uh, it's treason, extortion, bribery, deception, persecution. And, you know, I started to start to think, because you'll see why I did a little looking around and studying about um, oppressive rulers throughout the world and throughout the ages by the way he starts. He starts very uh, on a very down note about suffering, watching people suffer under tyrannical rulers. And so I just kind of Googled around. The list is stunning. I mean, we are spoiled rotten because uh, we, we don't know what problems are. We say our rulers are corrupt and yeah, but wow, no. Let me show you a map. Let me show you a map of the International um, Global Coalition uh, Against 
um, corruption. Now, it, it is not a, a United States deal. It's a international multicultural panel, and they, they have all kinds of scores, but they're just saying, where in the world can you just go to court and, and hope to get your shovel back, you know? Or where can you go into the store and buy something and, and find eggs on the shelf? Where can you cross it from one state into another state with goods and not have to use bribery, uh, you know? So they, they, they do this kind of evaluation and look at the world. Most of the world is suffering under terrible cruel, brutal, um, deceivers. Ma- Mao Zedong, remember him? Uh, he, I didn't know. I mean, he starved out 20 million people. Hitler, of course, and Stalin killed 25 million people. And Saddam Hussein and Robert Mugabe, right, of um, Zimbabwe, and Kim Jong-il and just... I'm talking about millions of people starving and crying and terrorized. And thank you for that um, map. So the list just goes on and on and on. It's not just today. It's all through uh, the ages. And so Solomon is journaling and reflecting on all things uh, senseless in this world and uh, things that render life meaningless. He continues his rant now in chapter four, now including oppressive powers, uh, power-hungry dictators that inflict misery on the masses. So are you ready? I mean, you had to get that introduction to, to hear what he's about to say, and here it is. Again, I looked and I saw the oppression that was taking place on this planet I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who's not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And so... Note takers, number one, better off dead. <laughs> now, new visitors, welcome. And <laughs> glad you wanted an encouraging word tonight from the Bible. Well, uh, it'll all make sense. Solomon is writing, of course, um, not prescriptive, but descriptive. So he's not prescribing. The Bible, the Holy Spirit isn't prescribing a way of life. It's describing a way of life for somebody who's wandered from the path, who, who's distant from God, who is backsliding, who has, uh, is being led by his passions, who's worshiping foreign gods, his wives' gods. Terrible. 
and he's fallen into some kind of funk and he can't see his way out. And this is his worldview. And he's just saying, and the Holy Spirit's anointing his worldview of meaninglessness in life because it's so true. And it's the thing that caused us to say, this world doesn't make sense. I need a savior. And so it resonates with us. And so here we're going to take a look at what he's talking about. He's saying without an eternal perspective, and for the victimized, and they are victimized, there's, no, there's apparently no comforter. You know, he doesn't see that because he's distant from God. It's, it appears to him there's no redemption in their suffering. They have no advocate. And then he's saying the, the, there's no ultimate justice for these tyrannical rulers. So he's saying un, unabated corruption and unending suffering makes a guy like me wonder, what's the point of being born? If there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no redemption, there's no God uh, walking with you through your suffering, working in suffering, making something good of it, working character in you, storing up treasures in heaven for you, giving you grace to walk through, not alone. If there's none of that, then why even be born? Because most of the world is laboring under poverty and, and uh, corrupt administrations and all of that. And so one writer said, a British pastor in the late 1800s, I love his quote, he says, oh, the tears for the oppressed, the tiny children, the terror-stricken fugitives from... Uh, he goes on, uh, the, the wicked abusers and the drunken tyrant in the home. Through all the centuries, tears have flowed enough to float a navy. F.B. Meyer. Yeah, and so we see, you know, he says, I, see, I saw the tears of the oppressed. Um, and seemingly no hope, no resolve, no justice. And so Solomon concludes, he says, uh, the person not yet born is spared. And then the person already who has died is freed. But without his uh, right perspective, he would never have said that. Because listen to one, one, another writer, John Trapp, uh, an English Anglican pastor from the 1600s said this. He would have never said that if he knew and accepted what happened to those who die unreconciled to God. Solomon would never say such a thing. Men are like silly fish. They see one another caught and jerked out of the pond of life, but they fail to see the fire and the pan into which they are cast, they who die in their sins. Now that sounds like a Baptist in the 1600s. <laughs> Well, actually, Solomon, with the gospel, even in a fallen world, um, life is precious and suffering abounds. Yes, it's a suffering caused by man. We brought the suffering on, but God is willing to walk with us in our suffering and that makes life worth living. So actually, the afflicted do have a comforter. See, his, his state is he's far from God. He's talking and he doesn't even know there's a heaven. He says, when you're dead, you're dead. 
That's Solomon. He's just, at the, he's just gone astray. So the afflicted do have a comforter. The downtrodden have a defender. The orphan has a father. The widow has a husband. The victim has an advocate. The oppressed have an avenger. The persecuted have a hope. The people of God have a future reward. And the cruel oppressor has an appointment with the judge of all the earth. So Solomon, there is a way to make sense of it, but it, you'll never make sense of it under the sun. You'll have to have an eternal perspective, Solomon. Let me show you, I've got a slide with some of these things that Solomon can't see right now because when you are backsliding and doing your own thing and taking a break from fellowship and taking some time off, you forget all of this stuff and your heart gets hard. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Your father wrote that. King David. Where they don't have any justice, there's nobody helping them. A father to the fatherless. Your father, were you paying attention at the dinner table? A defender of widows, God in his holy dwelling. It's mine to avenge. You think they're going to get away with it? No, God speaking first person, I'm going to repay. In due time, their foot will slip, trust me. Their day of disaster is near, says the Lord, and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord, this is Old Testament. The new is not any different from that. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the affliction of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them in this life or in the life to come for his people. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, the writer to the Hebrews who were persecuted. And when you... And when all that you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. Why? Because you had an eternal perspective. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. This is what Solomon does not have. When you're dead, you're dead. But when you're suffering in the name of Jesus, and Jesus says, dance and rejoice, because great is your reward in heaven. You see? There's perspective you're looking forward. This is working. And not just pie in the sky. But how about James saying, when you fall into trouble, count it all joy because God's at work in you. He's with you. That your, your, mature, your, your, your faith will, will be complete and mature and you'll be not lacking. Listen, the only <laughs> there's only one person who God said, it would have been better had they never been born. Do you remember who that is? Judas. If you, you come into this world and you reject Christ and you ignore God, it may be true that it'd be better if your mom and dad never met. But outside of that, I mean... <laughs> There's a lot of hope, people. There's a lot of hope. And you know what? Listen, God created people, and it must have been worth the risk of losing them forever than to never let them be born and to choose. Think about that. So we move on. Four. And I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. He's telling you all the things that trip me up about this life. 
All right? And, and so he's on to the next thing. He says, this is meaningless, that uh, uh, the rat race is being fueled by the engine of envy. It's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands. Now he's going to give a little proverb. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So he's continuing with all things that really tweak him about this. He's already called life lame. He's actually used the word lame. He says this life is broken. And the New Testament agrees. This isn't the way God created it. This is the the result of our fall and our rebellion and our linking arms with God's enemy, the devil. This is what happened. The whole world was rocked into futility and frustration and subjected that way by God, Romans chapter 8. So here's what he, he says. What really bothers me is this seemingly, seemingly hopeless plight of the oppressed and no one's to helping, helping them. And now he says the pathetic drive that's in all of us that, that sort of is the prompt to get ahead. This endless cycle of wanting to keep up with the Joneses. He says it's meaningless. And here's the question he keeps in front of you. So he says, I looked into my heart and everybody else's heart, it seems, that it's all about envy and jealousy. It's all for naught. So he says, listen, keeping up with the Joneses, it's meaningless. He says, even when you do keep up with the Joneses and even after you one-up the Joneses and the Joneses are now chasing after you, where does that get you? That's where he keeps coming back. He says, you know where it gets you? To a bigger estate sale after you die, where everyone, everyone tramples into your house, just tramples. They can't wait until 9 a.m. so they can trample through your house and look through all your stuff, and all your stuff's got stickers on it. You know, this is not what Solomon had in mind for joy. He wants to enjoy his toys, not see them, you know, negotiated in the garage with some person who doesn't even want to spend 20 bucks for his gadgets. I feel a lot better. Got that off of me. So he says, listen, he's, he's observing the motivations of the heart and, and it's turned him sour. So without the Holy Spirit to correct the heart that wants to covet and break the 10th commandment every single day, well, what do you have? You have no hope. You will never stop coveting. You will never stop wanting more. You will never kind of get tweaked when you're on Facebook and somebody else gets this big blessing. If you don't have the Holy Spirit and an eternal uh, perspective, you're always going to be tweaked. And even when you do have them, it's hard. Not to begrudge other people's promotions, not to... Uh, envy and be jealous of everybody else. He says, this is madness. He says, I look around and we're all sick. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you, if you start to analyze why everybody's doing what they're doing, oh, he says, man, that just, just bums me out. So, you know, he says, this motive could never be satisfied, so it leads to ceaseless work and despair. He says, listen, I've got the most beautiful women in the world at my beck and call. More beautiful than any 
of your girlfriends or your wives. That's what he says. And he says, I have got a better home than you. I've got lavish lifestyle. I have more cash in the bank than any of you. I have a virtual paradise in my backyard. And so what? I'm empty. I'm alone. I'm afraid to die without God. He's stranded at the top like a lot of people find themselves. So let's sum up four, five, and six because it it doesn't seem to make sense, but it's pretty easy. In four, he says, working hard when you're spurned on by covetousness is dumb. Then in verse five, he says, but being lazy and saying, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, then that's dumb too because (laughs) you need to work. And then he says, well, how about this? How about a happy medium? How about being happy with one handful and be happy and have peace rather than have two handfuls and have all the angst that goes with more, more, more. So he tries to end on a positive note and that's very very nice. Every time he says something good and true, it's always limited. It's just not the whole story. He's trying to say, hey, in a bad situation, let's just make the best of it. So he says, okay, be happy with one handful. It's something, like I said, you can see on Pinterest. You know, one handful with peace is better than two handfuls. Well, well, it's not the full story. Life is more than that. But it's still good. It's still good to have contentment, you know? But good luck to you finding contentment. <laughs> Seriously, if you don't have the Holy Spirit and you're not living a spirit-filled life, it just won't happen. So he goes on. He's, he ended on a happy note here, so he's going to have to bring it down again. All right? <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was this man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So here here he's saying, listen, can I give you an example of what I'm talking about that makes me crazy? He says, I know this guy. He's an only child. Uh, He's not married. He has no kids. And he's amassed to himself quite a little fortune. He worked like crazy to get it. One day he wakes up and he realizes it's time to retire. And he starts thinking, you know, I need to find a retirement home. And he's asking himself now, what was the purpose of all that? What just happened to me? My life is over, pretty much. And now now I can't enjoy the stuff, right? So he's saying, "I, um, I think I just wasted a perfectly good life. Now, this, and then he says, let me put it to you this way. He says, this is a miserable business of storing up pensions and IRAs and houses and land and forked over to somebody else who didn't work a day for it, who may not manage it wisely, who may not even appreciate it. He says, this drives me crazy. And I just have this friend I looked at and it just kind of brought it home for me. But with the Lord, it's not a miserable business life. It's a beautiful business. 
It's a beautiful business with the Lord. You know, with relationship with God and other sinners, you work hard. You work hard to give. You work hard to provide for your family. You work hard to advance the cause of Christ. Oh, it's not dreadful. It's not meaningless. It's just meaningless if it's all for self. But if it's for God, if it's for his glory, if it's for your family under the auspices of God's honor and God's instructions to care for our families, he says to leave something for them uh, who were raised in the Lord and better, leave an example of godliness and faith and devotion to Christ. So uh, which is it? Which is it? Is it a miserable business for you or is it a Beautiful business, a miserable business, a life for self. You have three beneficiaries, me, myself, and I, and that's why it's miserable. Now, for me, I wrote down a very nice question to ask myself, for whom am I toiling? That's the question that will determine whether you are a success in God's eyes or a failure from the scriptures. Who are you doing all this for? He already said it, it's a lot has to do with coveting and envying and jealousy. Who are you doing all this for? I'll just tell you from the bottom of my heart, I am not doing anything I do that costs me anything for my precious wife, for my precious children, and my precious grandchildren. It's not for them. I've never felt like it's for them. First, it's not for you, my dear friends. I don't feel like it's for you. I feel first that I have an obligation to somebody who saved my wretched, stinking, immoral, hell-bound soul. I could have, I didn't need an amen right there. Leon, that was poorly timed. Where are you? But I knew it was you. <laughs> you didn't even know me, Leon. I'm just... Yes, I know. I'm just teasing you. I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I tried to go to hell. I, tried. I worked at it, and he stopped me. I knew, I knew, I heard the voice, the whole thing, and I'm like, no, I want my sin. I was 19. Oh, he revealed the truth to me. I had enough evidence to have turned, and he would have been in full right to let some car run that wasted life over and just get rid of that blasphemous mouth. And I was, I was blasphemous to his people, and Christians would come up to me with the Bible, Talk to me about Christ. I was foul. I was aggressive. I was blasphemous. And I knew I was on the other side. I tried to go to hell. And he said, nope, not going to let you do that. And, and, and so I worked for him. I worked for him. Right? Don't you? Okay. Let's move on. Right, Leon? All right. <laughs> For, who, for whom do you toil tonight? 
All right, moving on. So the lonely, sad, and a miser friend of his uh, gets him thinking positively toward the remedy toward God. 1912. Two are better than one because, see, the other guy was lonely and ended his life kind of working just for him and money, right? So this is where his logic is going. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend could help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, you've heard that at weddings, haven't you? That's a popular one. I've used it myself. The bride, the groom, and Christ Jesus is, uh, I think it's an, an accurate application of what he's talking about, spiritually speaking. Uh, but uh, now, verses 9 uh, there through uh, 14 or 12. So the advantages of friendship. So this is nice, too. Now, remember, good advice, not full. It's never the gospel. But it's like, all right, you know, let me see this. Let me see this good thing, right? And it's always good. There's nothing wrong with it. It just needs, it could use a little enhancement, and and that's the preacher's job, right? And so I'll try to do that. Uh, So the advantages of friendship. So a wise man once said, an unfriendly man pursues selfishness and defies all sound judgment. You know who that wise man was? Solomon, when he was wise, right? So Proverbs 18.1, he says, it just doesn't make sense to be a, a, a loner, a one who likes to isolate, who doesn't invest in other people's lives because uh, sooner or later, the way life is designed, you're going to need somebody's help. You're going to need uh, somebody's companionship. And so unfriendly people are acting foolishly um, against self-interest not to invest in other people's lives because, as I said, it's only a matter of time under the sun uh, where you're going to need some help. Now, so he's saying here, life goes better with a Coke. No, (laughs) life, sorry. Oh, yeah. Somebody was doing their job with that PR slogan there. Uh, Under the sun, life goes better with a friend. So he says, he gives you a few reasons. Uh, When there's work that needs to be done, projects need to happen. Um, When you fall into trouble, there's a hand there to help you. Uh, When you need the warmth of human kindness, let's bring the application there. Uh, When your back's against the wall and some thug comes calling, it's nice to have some friends. You know, Mario, Luigi, and Guido. (laughs) I've got friends, all right? (laughs) Um, A bishop from the 300s. Tonight I'm reaching back through the centuries. Um, His name was Ambrose. And he said... um, He said, let me point out the Christological implications of these verses. That means, what does this verse say about Jesus? And so he said, Jesus is our friend who lifts us up and rescues us, the hand that raises us. He blesses our work and efforts. He warms our hearts with the love of God. He fights against those who fight against us. And he asked, Have you made Christ your friend? 
So let's finish up chapter four. Uh, don't get your hopes up because here we come down. You, you may have your friends, but it's all going to come crashing down. That's what he's going to say here now, 13 through 16. <laughs> uh, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So here, let me clear it up for you. Uh, friends, he says, are helpful. He says, but don't get your hopes up too high uh, because without God... It all just comes crashing down. As Jesus said, what does it profit a man if you have all these friends, you have all these uh, treasures, and you have all of this, but you lose your own soul? So he's, he's saying, take me for example. Here, this is what he's saying. Take me for example. I'm sort of, I've sort of arrived, as I said earlier. Uh, he says, I've sort of arrived, but I'm kind of stranded up here at the top. Celebrities. This happens to celebrities. They get up there. They make it. And then they go into drugs and alcohol. Because it's like, where is it? I made it. I'm here. And, and sometimes they take their own lives. Because they're ripped, they're ripped off. The life sold them under the sun motto, when you get here, you'll be happy. And then they get there. And he's saying, I get, I get here, and it's not working for me. So the first thing he says in 13, he says, a young man from the ghetto who's wise is better off than a king in his palace who's lost his way. So he's talking about himself. He's saying, I drive by and I see some nobody out there who's, who's a wise young man. He's better off than everything I have because I'm lost. I've got all the stuff, but I'm not connected to God. He sees a young man. He's connected to God. He's got light in his face. He's got nothing, but he's got God. And he says, boy, he's better off than me. So the next thing he says, furthermore, Take a rags to riches story or a dramatic comeback. You know, he, he says a guy out of prison or coming out of obscurity. He somehow manages to rise in the ranks and he becomes king. So he says uh, in verse 15, he says, I can see it. Everybody gets all excited. Hey, we got this new younger guy and, you know, everybody's excited. But he says it's all short lived. He says, trust me on this because he'll come in with an unprecedented approval rating of 95%. And trust me, in a matter of, uh, of years, the approval rating will plummet down to 12% because that's how it goes. Okay, economies go south, um, war drums uh, beat, and uh, infrastructure collapses, and then they're chanting, throw the bum out. All right, that's what he's saying. So he's saying, the guy who replaces me, oh, you know, there's going to be, oh, we got a new king. We do things differently now. And, and everybody's excited. And then watch out. It just goes go, go around and around and around. So a sad conclusion here is all things 
political, especially, seem to be temporary fixes, short-lived, and only a matter of time before things go uh, south. Now, I think he's thinking, well, when will it end? You know, there were kings before me, there'll be kings after me. It just goes around in circles. Where's the king that can make a permanent change, who can come in with a 100% approval rate and stay forever at a 100% approval rate, who does everything perfectly, who has perfect wisdom, perfect love, perfect knowledge, perfect power. Where is that king? Well, ironically, Solomon, he's your ancestor, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let me give you a scripture in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, Solomon, will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there's going to be no tears, Solomon, no tears, no oppression of the greatness of his government, Solomon, and peace. There'll be no end, no end to the peace, no end because he's Mighty God. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice. Where is the justice? It's coming. Righteousness from that time on and forever. The, and I, I love this sentence. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's in God's heart, burning bright to make sure this is going to happen. When I hear that, it's like done. It's going to happen. When God gets like all passionate about doing something, uh, get out of his way. Amen. Or get in the way, in a, in a good way, right? All right, so thank you for that. You can go back uh, to the verse. And so, yeah, he's coming. And ironically, he'll be, he's related to Solomon. Now, uh, just to be perfectly clear about this, Joseph is blood-related to Solomon. Mary is blood-related to Nathan, David's other boy. So the genealogy between Joseph and Mary split. So God, just for fun, he didn't have to, but he made Joseph stepfather, foster father, related to King David by blood. David is related, but he's related through Solomon. Joseph is. Mary is related to King David through David's son, Nathan. And so David, Nathan, and Mary in that line is biologically. So Solomon is not biologically related by blood to Jesus, but through Joseph's line, the king line. Just threw that in there. You know why? Because you came out on a Wednesday night to study the Old Testament, right? You guys are like little Bible scholars. Okay, so now it's time for, oh, oh let's just finish up. Uh, let's do seven more verses, all right, into chapter five. I know you can do it. Okay, here we go. He's going to give religious advice, and, and we're in church. It'll be good. <laughs> chapter five, verses one through seven. First, he's going to give advice about going to church and worshiping and prayer in verses one and two. And then second, 
through three through seven, he's going to uh, talk about making promises to God. Very well-known passage. So here we go. One through two. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they, are, that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God's in heaven. You're on earth. So let your words be few. Not New Testament, not gospel, not Jesus. But there is a layer of truth here. So let's take the layer of truth because it's good. It, it, it's saying something good. But then we'll, we'll expand here. So <clears throat> he says, ladies and gentlemen, you Israelites, you Jews, can you please take your, your religion serious? The Jews are born into religion. Back in the day, if you're a Jew, <laughs> they're all together in Israel. You, you're born into a religious system. And, and Solomon is seeing that most of the Jews were secular Jews, just like today. They weren't taking their uh, relationship with God seriously or their religion seriously. He sees the widespread foolishness of the irreverent and the hypocrisy, because why? He lives on the campus of the house of God, which is the temple. The temple was built right next to the palace. Solomon built both of them, right? And so he's on campus and he's seeing the shenanigans and it's tweaking him. So it's not just the world that tweaks him, it's the people of God that tweak him. And so he's just gonna give, give them some religious advice and say, I see what's happening. It's all under my nose and it bugs me. So let me just give you some advice, you religious people. So he says, um, listen, um, the following here is good advice, as I said, but it's not the whole story. So, and here's what I mean by that. You know, he'll say, enjoy the simple pleasures of life. That's good advice, right? That's not the whole story. Uh, he says, uh, get joy out of doing a job well done. That's nice. It's just not the whole reason we're here, you know? And so uh, that's what I'm talking about. He says, make friends. Friends are good. When you're in need, you call on your friend. Oh, okay. There's more. <laughs> There's just more, okay? And this is the case here. So he says, watch your step. When you go to church, he says, you're not going to a, a show, a sporting event, a book club. You know, uh, could you take your, your religion a little bit more seriously? And so Solomon is observing a lot of idle chatter in the courtyards and the frivolity, and it just makes him a little bit crazy. And he's saying there's not enough uh, serious contemplation, uh, listening to the word of God being taught, uh, not enough sober reflecting, uh, too much yakking. So uh, he says, just listen. Uh, one writer said, some people use the prayer meeting, public prayer, and they had a lot of public prayer there, and he had to hear it. Some people use uh, the prayer meeting to express their own personal opinions disguised in their prayers, um, political persuasions, uh, they use the prayer meeting to manipulate, to instruct, to preach, or to impress their listeners with their long-winded prayers. Instead of just simply speaking directly to God, to thank him simply and pe to petition him 
with a simple request. And so, yeah, I like one guy. Oh, I hope I wrote it down. Oh, come on. It was so good. I'll try to do it from memory. And then, uh, oh, I have it. <laughs> J. Edwin Orr, an Irish Baptist pastor from the 1900s early. I'm telling you, I was reaching. J. Edwin Orr, easy. <laughs> he said uh, he advised people to pray brief, concise prayers in a prayer meeting. He says, he said that when someone prays in a meeting, for his first three minutes, everyone prays with him. Should he continue a second three minutes, everyone prays for him. <laughs> Should he continue for a third three minutes, others start praying against him. <laughs> There's nothing more painful than somebody's oblivious to other people's time or other people's um, lives in the group that when they hijack the prayer meeting and make it so nobody ever wants to come back to that prayer meeting again. And let's move on. <laughs> he says, come to a place of worship, not full of yourself, not with a frivolous attitude. Um, that's just a fool's errand to do that. Um, now, you know, neither should you come with a sanctimonious attitude that's uh, dressed properly, speaks with hushed, reverent tones, and um, I only need to say three words to God. I love you. And all of you, uh, all of you other less eloquent people, you can use lots of words and all of that. Behaves impeccably outwardly, but inwardly lacks a love for God. So, you know, you got to watch out for this. So in this context, sacrifice of fools would be somebody who brings to the uh, temple an offering and they would have a barbecue and they would kind of party. So that's the context there. In this life, more contemporary, it's the man who writes the big check on Sunday and cusses people out in traffic on Monday, is rude to his wife and abusive on Tuesday. On Wednesday, you know, he lies to his boss. On Thursday, he slanders a coworker. On Friday, he gets drunk. And on Saturday, he looks at porn. And then on Sunday, he writes a check, sings the songs, and says amen. That is a contemporary meaning of the sacrifice of fools. It means your lips and your profession doesn't match your life. And so, you know, those kinds of people always say, what? I'm going to church. I go to church every Sunday. Hmm. Let's finish up. So that's what he's saying. Now, three to seven. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. So promising, getting, letting your mouth lead you into sin. When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Very good. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest when the temple messenger, don't tell the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming 
and many words, like just living in a fantasy world, not thinking about what you're saying to God and promising, are meaningless, therefore stand in awe of God. So he's saying, God, God is in heaven. You're on earth. Let your words be few. You know, first of all, Solomon, listen, uh, God is far removed from you, and you say he's to be feared, but yes, to have reverence, that's true, but Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near. So Solomon is far. So Solomon says, hey, God is way up in heaven. You're on earth. Let your words be few. Jesus says the kingdom of God is near you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burden. Come and share your heart. Let your words be many. Let your words be many. When they're right, when you're just pouring your heart out to God. So it's a nice thing to juxtapose what Solomon's saying and what Jesus is saying. So now he says loose lips, and we're closing. Loose lips sink ships. In, in secular living, how much more with your relationship with God? So it's interesting what's bothering Solomon here. And yeah, it bothers God for sure too. But we're going to see. He's overseer of the temple. He's not the high priest, but he oversees the high priest. And he knows what's going on. Now, and he does the finances. So here's, he's just saying yeah, the Israelites are, are, are tweaking him again. And it and, and doesn't make sense. Because if you make a vow to God, fulfill your vows, people. So that's what's tweaking him. So the worshipers come daily, but the seven feasts happen. Three of those feasts, every adult Israeli, 20 years and older, had to come and off, make an offering. And it was during those times when they came, there'd be music, singing, uh, drinking a little wine, not to excess, family, dancing, emotions are stirred, Right? And publicly, they made their vows. So here's what they'd say. They vow pledges to, to the temple. And you see it in the Old Testament. So they, they'd pledge money for maintenance, supplies for the ministry. They'd pledge for gifts to the priests and the Levites to help sustain their lives. They would make vows to increase their tithes um, publicly. They would make uh, vows uh, about pieces of property that they had. You know, we're not using it. We're going to sell it. And we're going to give that money to the house of the Lord. Here's a lot of emotion, a lot of talking, a lot of partying, a lot of tears, and a lot of here and now. I pledge this piece of property is going to go to the house of the Lord. And they'd write it down. Now, here's what they did back in the day. Churches don't do this. But the priests would make house calls. They would go and follow up and say, you know, we want to make this convenient for you, right? So we're, we're going to come. You know, some churches send out letters. Yeah, that's awkward. But can you imagine? Hi, Mr. Goldberg, you know about the 500 shekels? And he says, I didn't say 500 shekels. I said five shekels. I said, oy vey, I wish I had 500 shekels to give you. But I wrote down five. You ask my wife, honey. And, and, and he calls it. So he, he says, stop doing that. If you stand up in church and say, or you write out a faith pledge, 
You're talking to God. You're going to say, JK, after you tell God, oh, you, you know, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start doing this. This isn't our problem. Our problem is when we feel like we need something, we feel guilty or threatened. And so, so we bargain with him and say, if you do this, then I will. And then as soon as we're out of harm's way, the temple messenger comes like, didn't you say you would stop doing so-and-so if I did that? Or I would start doing so-and-so if God intervened there and the messenger of the Holy Spirit and conscience comes? And you say, well, <laughs> actually, uh, what I meant by that. Yeah, he says, now, Solomon is distant from God, so he sees God ready to destroy you for that. The New Testament will say, God loves you. He's not angry. Say, do you want to make God angry? Oh, you can never make God angry as a Christian. Never. You can't make him angry. He took all his anger out on Christ. There's not an angry cell in his body toward any Christian. He can be grieved. And he can correct you. That's not fun to be chastised. But he isn't there to be angry and destroy Solomon because when you're backsliding, that's what you think. He's up there. You want to tick God off? Boom, lightning bolt. He's going to destroy the work of your hands. If that were true, that he would destroy the work of your hands every time you don't fulfill a promise you've made to God, we'd all be destroyed. Amen? You still with me? Leon, where are you? <laughs> So he doesn't get angry and destroy us. He gets grieved and he chastises us. So we're done. Application for Christians. Follow Jesus' advice and don't vow at all. Just don't vow at all. Even Solomon says, just, you know, let your yes be yes. Just do as you intend to do and don't do as you don't intend to do. That's what Jesus said. So uh, to honor God as a Christian, you should not be quick to make vows. You should be serious about fulfilling any vow you did make and repent and confess broken vows as sin. And here's my good news to close on. It doesn't depend on your promise to God. It depends on God's covenant promise to you. All right? That's What's important? Now, I'm not advocating you uh, go around and make promises and break your promises. What does that do to earthly relationships when a guy uh, always says something and doesn't keep his word all the time? It undermines the relationship. So you don't want to do that with God. But you remember, he made you some promises. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Never is a big word. He says, He'll always keep these promises, even when we don't keep ours. If anyone believes in me, he'll live forever, even if you die. If you confess your sins, I'll be faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He keeps these promises even when we come up short. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for all that we're learning, and we just get uh, kind of just shaken with the truth. And it's good for us, Lord, to see how serious life can be and meaningless. 
when we're not filled with your spirit and close to your heart and doing your will. Help us to learn to stay close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.